As far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to have just an off-the-cuff chat between you and me, us. We want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. As we are still reeling back from the moments that we all witnessed, which, which is an insurrection, which was an insurrection on the Capitol building, the word that is popping around, you'll be amiss if you have not seen or heard the word, the F word, as it were, being touted around on, from new station to new station, the F word, the fascist word. So I'm going to ask you, Dr. Aaron, was this a fascist moment in what we see, in what we saw in Trump? I like the term the F word. <laughs> it's one of many F words that's come up in the past. In the, in the context of the culture wars, if we call it that, was it a fascist moment? Well, I guess I would say a lot of people seem to think so. And it is a term that's been used quite often. And there, as I think many of us know, there's been a lot of debates about that on social media and amongst the commentariat. Do I, I think there were absolutely some fascist elements and some fascist implications of this. I guess I would say beyond the overt kind of swastika wearing, Auschwitz camp wear, t-shirt wearing crew, but the absolute anti-democratic nature of it. And although many of those who have been described as protesters or rioters, the mob, have been claiming to do so in the name of democracy and liberty. Yes. Um, very, very specifically and ideologically defined. And it's typical of the American far right, particularly in a sort of a post-revolutionary discourse, post-American yeah. revolutionary discourse. They seek or were seeking to overturn a democratic election yes. and maintain the authority of an authoritarian leader. But I think, and one which was organized around a relationship, well, not blood and soil, obviously, as a sort of white settler colonial nation, but actually a sort of a, a white nativist, white supremacist order. I think the key to that, there's two, three things I'd, I'd want to say. I think we need to, we need to acknowledge the fact that people will throw around the, around the word fascist uh, for the purposes yes. of emphasis to indict Trump yes. and indict his followers as something so extreme and beyond the pale. And I, I want to yeah. come back to that. But there's also obviously parsing of the accurate use of the term fascism and the accurate sort of historical legacies, et cetera, which I don't necessarily want to get into because I don't, I don't want it to become a theoretical or historical debate necessarily. Mm -hmm. But it's also an whether what's happening now could be a threat to American democracy and see us go down the path of Nazi Germany and sort of wider Europe, Italy under fascism. I don't think that is the case. I don't think that is the danger. And I think okay. the use of fascism can often see, be so extreme, too is another term, sedition, that puts this so beyond the pale that has the function of separating what is being done, the extreme manifestation of Trumpism, if you will, yeah. from the very nature of American history and American democracy and the mainstream. 
And I think that's very problematic because for the past number of years, we've been told that Trump followers represent a democratic mandate, the left behind, the demos, the people. And, and somewhere between these two extremes of this is what, Amer- this is what America, Americans represent, and this is a small band of extremists, comes the fact that it seems to be there was an overlap or alignment with the police and security. And I think that's really where the fascism comes in when actually you have this complete meeting of the extreme or extremist elements, the state security apparatus, law enforcement, and executive power. Absolutely. I mean, as someone who has been invested in researching, you know, um, in your book, Reactionary Democracy, and having studying kind of, you know, populist movements, was this moment predictable in your eyes? Well, it's interesting because, in a sense, I wouldn't call it a populist movement. And I think populism, as as Aurelian and I have discussed in our work, is the use of the term populism to describe what is often sort of like far right, overtly yes. like racist and fascistic elements is actually a way of making it seem like it has a democratic mandate, like it represents the people. And yes. now everyone's trying to deny that fact. So that's quite interesting. After years yeah. of normalizing the through the term populism, despite the stigmas attached to populism, because it was always a stigmatizing discourse as much as it was a pseudo-democratizing one. I think that, yeah, I guess now everyone's trying to kind of cut their losses, if you will. And what worries me about, again, the term fascism is that it creates this idea of some element that is now severed from the demos, or some demos, I don't use that term, the mainstream. Yeah. And I am not sure if that answers your question, but Yeah, and I just want to kind of unpack in and researching the, the far right and, and yeah, so was it was a kind of predictable moment for people. Was sorry, it, was yes, bound of to happen? Yeah. I tend not to do predictions, I guess. Okay. <laughs> um and I guess sorry, I, I sort of like I, I got caught up in the populism thing and I sort of didn't finish up with what you were asking. I guess I would say is is that what we argued is that there was this mainstreaming, legitimization, and emboldening of the far right. I mean, we always yeah. argued the idea of rendering these kind of elements or this type of racism and far-right ideas as populist, mm-hmm. democratic, or even the liberal platforming of them was yes. always going to turn on its head. And the illiberalism, which was concealed within those narratives and discourses, was going to be legitimized and come out. And, we, yes. and in a sense, this is not new. We've been seeing far-right and extreme-right violence, plots, threats, hate crimes, all on the increase. I mean, even the FBI and Homeland Security have been warning about this. But it's important for me that we don't let that, as serious as it is, distract from where it came from, what enabled it, and what will continue to be in power or have power when when it is so, it is discarded. From the American kind of imagination and memory. Yeah, Not, so let's I mean, ask those questions yeah. then. So where did it come from and what enabled it? Well, I mean, just in terms of the prediction thing, I also want to say that many experts did predict something was going to happen. And I, and I yeah. hesitate to because I, I don't know what's in the minds of every actor. But I also yeah. don't know how the security services are going to react in a way that will prevent something from happening yeah. or enable or allow it. And I think what we saw here is not just a group of extremists, a group of Trumpists, 
decided to do something, but actually they were able to do something further than most people would have imagined because no exactly. one would have thought the capital would be, would be that's open access, if you will. Exactly. Yeah. So you asked where it came from. In a lot of my work and my work with Aurelian and others, Katie Brown, for example, as well, we look at the mainstreaming of the far right and far right ideas. And I think over the last number of years, we've not just seen a normalization of racism and far right ideas around immigration, around Muslims, around mm. borders, around cultural and so-called civilizational debates yeah. about we, we, but you have liberals saying we have to debate these ideas. You have mainstream media saying, well, if we're going to give the left wing side, we have to give the far right side. <laughs> and what was interesting about this, they rarely gave the left wing side. Left wing side was usually caricatured as woke snowflakes, you know, cultural Marxist, cultural Marxist. Yeah. I, and it's interesting cultural Marxist is where you saw the fascism come in. Because that, was, <laughs> that was always a sort of like, it's an anti-Semitic kind of fascistic kind of conspiracy theory. Exactly. But you had these sort of like liberals saying, I believe this, the, the far right's bad. And then other liberals going, well, we need to hear their side. Otherwise we're not going to dig down and expose bad ideas. And they keep on exposing bad ideas, exposing bad ideas, exposing bad ideas until the point where like, instead of being defeated, they were completely normalized. You don't need to have Generation Identity, Tommy Robinson, Richard Spencer, Steve Bannon, pro like promoting their ideas on BBC, on, on whatever uh, news outlet. And, and these are not... These are, a, a side point then, are you saying yeah. you, you support deplatforming certain individuals then? Yeah, well, I support no platforming as a sort of strategy against sort of fascist, racist, etc. in in institutions. Uh, Deplatforming would be the sort of social media one where you take away someone's right to a platform. Yeah, you, you cancel take them, them off of a platform. Yeah, so you trump with deplatform. Yes. Yeah, no, no platforming would be a form of sort of activist things. Do I support that? Yes. I mean, I don't think we. These are people who deny their right to exist of others. Mm. These are not equal ideas in a marketplace of ideas. What would you say an equal idea is? And again, my point, where is the, the benchmark for this? For example, would we deplatform the likes of Ben Shapiro, for example? Well, I, I guess I would turn <laughs> to the idea of would we deplatform? I mean, Ben Shapiro has his own media sort of little empire, right? So, yeah. so, and, <laughs> and Ben Shapiro doesn't have a right to speak at Berkeley. He may be invited. Yes. But it's not a democratic right to be in an institution and speak. You can protest. I would say the I, that one of the problems with this the the anti cancel culture argument yes. it constructs something which is I I don't think is real. The idea that there's a culture of cancellation. I think yeah. you find far more censorship on the right and amongst uh, reactionaries. But also it constructs an idea that people are losing a platform they have a right to have. Mm. And they're and in this construction, they're denying the free speech rights of protesters to protest this. I mean, I don't run an institution. I'm not. I don't make the policy. Would I yeah. protest a fascist speaking? Yes. But then, do what do you think about the the these tech companies and the likes of Twitter kind of banning Trump at the eleventh hour? And I don't know. I'm not sure if that's really any cause for praise. Well, I guess I guess the question I would ask you is. Is that because it's the last hour or it's because you don't think they should do it? And if you don't think they should do it, is that because you think there'll be a backlash or you think it's undemocratic? Brilliant questions. I would say that because at the 11th hour, I would say that 
now it seems, oh, this was the final straw when for so many for so long has saw saw the rhetoric in which he was espousing and 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 the incitement, literally the literal incitement. So I feel like yeah. now doing it in length hours, like okay, a bit little, a bit little too late. I kind of feel it's a bit hypocritical of those on the right and those who are, you know, openly so pro-capitalist to say that this is this is against our freedom of speech. I'm thinking, well, the market does what the market does, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> like these are, these, are, these are private, <laughs> these are private tech companies. And besides where I might stand philosophically on whether things should be cancelled or not, yeah. this is a you know, you, these people are pro-capitalist people and they say the market decides what the market decides and there should be limited government interference. So if, if that's what the market has decided, that's, that's their pejorative. <laughs> that's kind of where I see it anyway. I think kind of them doing them doing it at the last, uh, at the 11th hour was a bit, for me, too little too late. And I do think as well, kind of answering what you said afterwards, it does embolden the people who say, look, they're trying to cancel us from speaking. I could, yeah, I mean, I compl- I'm in complete agreement. I wasn't trying to turn the tables. I was just, I was, I'm really <laughs> but um. The, I guess, okay, oh my, I mean, I'm in total agreement. I mean, it's like, do you, this is what I, I wonder about this idea that there's like this fascist takeover America. And I'm thinking, <laughs> that's where the line is drawn. You have to actually occupy the Capitol in order to get turfed off Twitter. And then someone's going to go like, yeah, well, the Twitter thing is undemocratic. And the problem is you, what, what you have effectively is a right wing, a, a far right talking head who's operating under the guise of libertarianism yeah who's never sure whether his like i mean on some hands like you know the 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 racism of of a lot of the libertarians is is couched in this idea that corporations shouldn't have to hire anyone they don't want to you know it's like this very odd and awkward right but it works but i guess the thing is is that I have thought for a lot of them, particularly the, the, the libertarian and the sort of the free market enablers yes. and legitimizers, for them, it, it was often at least half or more about capitalism. Mm-hmm. And what was so, you know, they, they defend Dan Moore with the Google letter. It becomes about protecting capitalism from anti-racism. And in a sense, because they had conflated anti-racism with socialism, it was, these were, you know, it's two, you know, two birds, right? And they, yeah. they were protecting it. And, and I, some of them, I don't know what they thought the really exact relationship was. But uh, it's also funny that, you know, all, all the sort of like, it's sort of the Marxists who don't like uh, identity politics. <laughs> so, um, but the, the interesting thing I, I find is they feel, and I think this started a lot with uh, Kaepernick. Oh, the Denmore letter and Google and then Kaepernick, the idea that capitalists were betraying their enablers and enforcers. Mm. And a lot of like intellectual dark web and others, they saw themselves as defenders of capitalism. Yes. Now, the whiteness, the white civilizational, the enlightenment discourse, they they were defending it. It's racist, it's chauvinistic, it's misogynist, but they also thought they were doing it in the service of capitalism. They didn't think they didn't they didn't think there was like a big separation between the two. Okay. So so what we have is, and you see this discourse a lot about woke capitalism. They feel yes. an, they seem to feel angrier at capitalism for folding, allegedly, not yes. realizing at any given point, and knowing all the you know the anti-racist and left-wing critiques of of sort of capitalist capitalist anti-racism, right? Yeah. right? That that effectively this was the market coming to bear. I mean, these, these companies were ma- are making marketing and, and finan- economic decisions at the same time, right? Yeah. They're 
they're not going all of a sudden like, I have changed my entire view about inequality. In fact, a lot of times this becomes a distraction from the inequality that they are built upon and perpetuate. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, What I would say then, we saw a lot of the time people were saying that economic anxiety, I know that in our episode before, we kind of unpacked the myth of the left behind, but I'd like to go into it again. When people say, oh, this is just people who are, you know, they suffer from economic anxiety. What would be your response to that? Oh, I'd be curious who they're talking about. I mean, I mean, we see... I mean, it's talking about white working class, isn't it? That's what normally categorizes people. Yes, well, I mean, they're talking definitely about the white working class, but I think... I, I think we discussed this earlier as well. The the idea that they what they're doing is they're is they're it's like a Trojan horse of sorts, and it's fairly obvious. It's like it's like a see through Trojan horse horse that they're basically bringing in this white victimization, white grievance culture, often white male grievance yeah. culture, in through this idea that it's the white working class left behind by the forces of globalization. Well, they sometimes slip up and call it globalism, which is a bit of a, a hint for <laughs> neoliberalism and everything. And it's, it's almost this pseudo sociology of white grievance. Yes. And and this is also why, I mean, Aurelian and I discussed at length about the, the role of social scientists and political scientists who are enabling this. But the idea is you bring it in. And if you look closely, I mean, you look at the voting for Trump or you look at, I mean, the socioeconomic status or identities of many of the people at, at the Capitol. Yeah. These were not the disenfranchised. But, Absolutely. But it also, and neither is Trump, neither is Farage. I mean, I mean if, you can, yeah. if you can take a flight and check yourself into a hotel and storm the Capitol, you're not disenfranchised. <laughs> or the, the son of a judge and, uh, you know. Exactly. exactly. I, I understand there was, a, there was an Olympic athlete. There was, um, and there, there was allegedly undercover police and military. That doesn't surprise me at all, which no, says no. a lot. Um, I mean, for me, for me that was a, and again, I'm not sure AOC did a live last night, actually, Instagram live speaking about her experience. And she said that, you know, the panic buttons were removed from the offices and there's a lot of, like, there's a lot of questions as to why Oh, really? People so overrun so quickly, and she, you know, she speaks not, not even to be sounding conspiratorial, but she spoke about a few, a lot of question marks. And I think, undoubtedly, like it would not surprise me if there's law enforcement involved. I mean, you know, overwhelmingly, law enforcement was our supporters of Trump. I mean, that's that's yeah. not that's not conspiracy. That's a fact. So I think that that wasn't that wasn't surprising me in the slightest, which is very worrying actually. I mean, not I mean, not like we didn't know, but I think just for it to be brought out so obvious i think it's very worrying but for me if i'm honest i think if ever abolitionists needed an advertise an advert for their course that, yeah. that, that there it was it was handed to them in the form of the insurrection because either it, policing doesn't work in the way in the way it should do in the way people say it does yeah or they you know money should be reallocated to different places to ensure public safety because clearly policing isn't it so yeah, yeah. i mean i saw this on twitter after it's like i mean a lot of people going you can't reform this now <laughs> i would say just just going back to the sort of the, the left behind thing i think one of the things that this was a, a guise for was people white people white men often right wingers anyway who were worried about their loss of privilege and yes. we know it, it for a lot of these people with a lot of privilege power and the assumptions of privilege and power, they simultaneously, oh, and I should know white working class is also sort of an argument for sort of like, you know, not in the sort of fascist blood and soil, but like a sort of American frontier settler and even immigrant labor, white immigrant labor 
authenticity, mm. salt of the you know earth. But I would say that the you know, people who have the assumptions of power and privilege, if for them it's a zero sum game. So you know Obama gets elected and everything's gone. Civil rights, yeah. you know, um, desegregation. Any given point in a far right mobilization, and there's been several particular historical points. They've almost always been predicated on a you know an, an alteration to the sort of the the sort of the, the racial order of things not even radical yeah. or revolutionary in a lot of cases but actually like you know abolition of slavery like i mean as radical as that may be it's not as if it was like a, a democratic revolution where black people had power afterwards exactly. you know what i mean like but any inkling is a is a loss and an opportunity for mobilization the exception to that would be ironically in the 1930s the emergence of american fascism Yes. Is the Depression era. Yeah. Mobilizations, which were not predicated on something specifically about sort of black rights. Mm. Whereas the civil rights era was, the reconstruction was. But the, I guess the other thing was that the white working class left behind things seemed to legitimize the grievance. It gave it some material basis or reality. Exactly. And kind of, you analyzing what, what we're seeing in the UK then. I mean, I know you don't like predictions, but where are we in the UK? If you're gonna if you were to give a snapshot in terms of the politics, the kind of the far right movements and, and how far we are we from America in terms of what we're seeing in the ground in the UK? Oh, it's an interesting question. I wouldn't mind actually also coming back to the police thing, if you don't mind. Okay, yeah, yeah, you, yeah, raise, you raise some issues that I find really fascinating. Yeah, but do that. <laughs> but I'm happy to do the uh, the British one first if you want. <laughs> Okay, no, let's 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 go reverse. Let's go for the police one again. So, what's your thoughts on the policing and the carceral state? So, I'm just as a criminologist. <laughs> yeah, I there's a couple of things I wanted to raise because there's been a lot of things people saying that the different response of the police capital in co- comparison to Black Lives Matter yes. is evidence of racism, mm-hmm. institutional racism in police. And I guess I would say, I think it goes so much deeper and so much more insidious because what we saw was not just a a completely brutal, violent crackdown on Black Lives Matter, but the police were both in lockstep with Trump and were backed by the far right. Mm. So when you see the relationship between these three parties at the Capitol, Yes. That's where it becomes extremely worrying. And and I would say, like, you know, I mean, the police, the far right and Trump can be over can overlap in cultural and ideological affiliations and identifications. Patriotism, yes. the na- defense of the nation, conservatism, yes. masculinity, you know, law and yes. order. But it's what what I find also interesting about this is the assumption that Black Lives Matter, and this is about this whole systemic racism argument that the right thinks by calling it systemic racism and them calling Black Lives Matter extremists, that they are fighting an organization or a movement that is, wants to destroy America. So these, these actors cannot imagine they're destroying America. They think they're defending it. And they also think they're defending it in a line, in sort of, in conjunction with Trump and the far and and the police who also think they're defending American institutions. Yes. Even when they're not. But what's quite interesting about it is the the assumption that, that Black Lives Matter and anti-racist activists, and I think black people in general, 
are a threat before they do anything. Mm-hmm. And the assumption that the far right almost needs to has legitimate grievance and should let off some steam Ooh. Ooh, yes. is a complete white supremacist racist kind of schema. And the reason I'm raising this is partly because there is not the evidence of Black Lives Matter's sort of violent insurgency against America. But there is absolute consistent evidence that the far right, despite defending the system and being in sort of like, you know, in support of and and enabled by the president and possibly elements in the police, the far right has been often anti-government, anti-federal government in in terms of, you know, reconstruction or civil rights or desegregation, but also in the 1980s and 90s. They were, you know, militias were forming, federal buildings and, and police and IRS agents were being attacked. Yeah. And even that history is not enough to make the police worry about these, these types. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and I think so, I, and it doesn't answer the carceral question, but I do worry, I should say, that if we turn to criminalization and securitization of, yes. of the far right, it's already set up to crack down harder on Black Lives Matter and Antifa mm-hmm. in the same way that the very same COINTELPRO HUAC investigations and, and arrests of Klan members in the 1960s was you came from the COINTEL program and HUAC, which went after the left and civil rights activists, and then it was used against the Black Panthers and the Weather Underground and others right after. The, their focus on the right has been temporary. And if there's a crack at criminalization, securitization of social and political movements in general, the very organizations and movements that have been fighting against this racism and fascism that no one else seemed to pay attention to or care about until it occupied the, the capital yeah. will, be disa- will be harmed. And I think that's an important That's a very, actually, a very important point, um, kind of securitization of Black Lives Matter and the far right, because, I mean, we know... COINTELPRO systematically, you know, destroyed the kind of freedom fighters, revolutionaries that were fighting against this yeah. kind of racism and fascism. But, you know, the actual, the actual active, so it's very interesting now, I'm seeing the dichotomy in my head when I'm seeing that the people that were trying to make the country more democratic were the people that were cracked down upon. But the people that are very, you know, the people that were very testing the limits of democracy and, you know, trying to actually, you know, you know, kind of destroy democracy are not seen as, you know, not viewed in, viewed in the same way. And that's kind of racism that's imbued. And that's when, when we say systemic racism and you can't reform this-ish. <laughs> this is what we're yeah, talking yeah. about. It's so embedded. But I do want to kind of press you again on the, the on Britain. Yeah, What's yeah, yeah. the state of the right now? And where's, I, I won't say where it's going because I know you don't like predictions, but where are we <laughs> at now? Yeah, well, I, I mean, where we are, we are a, a lot of uh, British media and politicians wagging their fingers at America. Yeah. Being so so and Trump being so dangerous and everything so bad, and I mean, it often makes me think about. I mean, the very history of of uh, sort of the I guess the sort of the post colonial post sort of war era, and even even during the Second World War, this idea that that Britain always seeing America as having this sort of like this problem with racism and and political or cultural irrationality. I mean, even Enoch Powell's speech. Was, blood. Was, a blood. was also about America having a problem and it bringing, coming over here as if, and, and I, I'm not saying that the problem he's like, was identifying is a problem, right? 
but I, what I'm saying is, is that like there's there's always this, this idea that America has this kind of violent sort of race problem. Yeah. Well, I'm doing air quotes here. And you're going to bring it over here as if this country hasn't engaged in sort of like horrific, racist violence globally. Right. Now, the reason I say this is not in any way to defend or recover any virtue of America, but importantly, it's serving as a distraction Mm -hmm. or as a sort of cleansing of the body politic, because we have a right wing government that is traded in racism, austerity, inequality, injustice, and legitimized, enabled, and, um, you know, treated Trump very, very sort of like very well, right? Yes. With, with, with great respect. And now they have to kind of clean their house. And, okay. But they, they treated him well because they have, I think, a lot of the same politics. Mm-hmm. But they also have, you know, money and sort of military kind of issues that the far right, you know, you know, far right, capitalism and militarism. Hand in hand. You know, <laughs> So what's happening, I think, I think there's often a displacement onto America of problems that exist here. I mean, don't, we shouldn't forget that during the, the big protests in the spring and the summer, you know, we had protests against statues and monuments to slave traders and sort of, you know, white supremacists. And America, you know, the government here and the government there were both defending these monuments and opposing protesters and then you have this thing and this is what interesting to me the protests around parliament defending statues yeah Yeah. (laughs) other places we're not that distance to the politics and identifications of those in the offices in parliament you know but of course we can stigmatize those as working class far right etc and i you know not that the far right doesn't deserve stigmatization but what's happened here these alignments between those in power and those who are deemed deemed to have no power and legitimate grievance and are often the street soldiers for the establishment. Very very represented in in the politics then. Yeah, Um, totally. And so what's going to happen, right? So we see these these images of far-right protesters in Britain. We go like, oh, look at them. They're just beyond the pale, all this kind of stuff. But they don't have that different ideas and identifications and defenses. As those in power, but then you look over what's happening in America, the displacement continues. The British government, you know, people here displace racism onto the working class, right? Yeah. Or the constructed working class. The British elite and wider population may displace it onto America. Americans are now displacing it onto Trump and this band of this mob. No one yeah. can look at the, look in their own house. I think the language of Malcolm X. I mean, no matter what happens, chickens will always come home to roost. I think that's a very poignant point. But I want to I wanna just, yeah. I have another F word for you. And I don't, I don't want to go into oh, it no. too much, but I, I want to <laughs> ask, what is the British government's beef with Foucault? <laughs> very briefly. Oh, oh wow. <laughs> so, oh, well, <laughs> so, sorry, I'm laughing because I'm, I'm remembering back when I was a student. Yeah. And we had all these debates. It was the first time I came to this country. I was doing my master's in yeah. philosophy and social theory. And in one building were all the Foucaultians and Deleuzians and you know, De- Deridians. And the other one were the sort of like the realist social theorists who yeah. thought the people in the other building, what they were teaching was going to be the end of civilization, right? But it's all yeah. just sort of like white theorists and philosophers <laughs> talking to each other about who's going to destroy what. 
as if their comfortable positions are going to be impacted. But I think that kind of culture war around theory kind of died out in the postmodern wars, if you will. And I think there's been an attempt in the current reactionary backlash to stir it up again. And I think there's been a lot of academics who have been weaponizing this. James Lindsay and the kind of like the uh, grievance studies crew, the intellectual dark web. They're trying to talk the language of theory. And maybe a lot of them are digging into that old work or they were students back then. I don't know. But they decide to create these kind of like figures of hate who will destroy the world or civil white Western white civilization, heterosexual civilization, or with their theory. Now, I mean, being an academic, I mean, like the idea that like, not only we could have that level of impact, but theorists of all. <laughs> I'm not backward to theory. I'm not. I'm not criticizing theorists, but like the one thing you don't think of, I mean, like this is who's going to have the greatest impact of all the all the academics. It's going to be the philosophers, <laughs> on a concrete kind of material level. But I think what's also happened is you you have a lot of academic reactionary academics fueling this. So these are also the experts that will be listened to. You have the kind of the 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 left behind theorists, yeah, de- demographers, yeah, and you have these people who are telling a right wing, often racist government what they want to hear about the British population's interests and mm. what they want their politicians to do. Right. So you have that, but you also have this whole kind of sort of theoretical, cultural, pseudo-academic vanguard. And often like, you know, you, I mean, you have Spiked, for example, and the sort of Academy of Ideas and all these kind of organizations, which are, I mean, some of them are now House Lords, you know, <laughs> in, in, in position. It's, they've spent the past period of time under sort of like, you know, the, the theories of Frank Ferretti, like telling us what is bad in this culture, what has changed. Mm. And... What is the weirdest thing is, Freddie has this whole idea of a, a culture of fear. They're all about moral panics, but they stir up moral panics. But they stir up moral panics about the left, about anti-racists, about trans activists, they, they, about the threat to free speech. And they're telling a conservative government what they want to hear. Absolutely. And I think that, I mean, you also have, you know, four, you know big name critics of, of Trumpism, et cetera. But... You, you have this this academic kind of like, you know, wannabe vanguard who are filling right wingers and policymakers who often some of who aspire to be intellectuals. Steve Bannon, for yeah. example, with ideas about critical race theory and Foucault and postmodernism. And I mean, if you dig down, I mean, we were talking about the definition of fascism. You want to hear you want to hear terms that are overused in like bizarre ways that are virtually meaningless. You know, and and only used in weaponized ways. It's ironic that you're talking about theoretical concepts where there's virtually no understanding of what they the theory is or the meaning. And critical race theory is, you know, in some ways it, it may seem dangerous for them because it's got a critique of systemic racism and systems of racism. But they don't know that. They just think everything <laughs> that, that's anyone who says something about racism is a critical race theorist. Literally, it's like, I mean, you saw Nig- Nigel Farage on, on, on Twitter. He said, you know, 
I hope Sadiq Khan is happy for putting up, uh, is proud of supporting a Marxist organization of BLM. I'm thinking, again, again, exactly speaking to your point, these terms are only used when they're weaponized. Yeah. Because I, oh, I guarantee that they don't, have, they don't have any idea of what critical race theory is. They couldn't tell you what it talks about. They couldn't tell you what Foucault talks about. They couldn't tell you what Marxism is. And, and you know, but no, but, you know, this, again, I think that so many countries have like great myths that they're built upon. Almost yeah. like these foundational stories that they built upon. So, you know, for example, you have people in America who will say things like, you know, we beat communists. I mean, they couldn't tell you what communism is or where or where communism was located in part of the world, but they say, you know, this is what we are built upon. So naturally it's easy to weaponize, you know, just call BLM a Marx organization and get it over and done with. You know, I mean I mean I just yeah. kind of my last point would be when I saw Dr. Corner West kind of dunking on um, Tucker Carlson, Carlson Tucker, I think, yeah. on Fox News and saying that, you know, about democratic socialism, and he looked really confused. And again, I guess it's just for me, that was just exemplified of, you know, what the culture war is, <laughs> as it were. I mean, you have to think about it, right? There's like this bunch of adults who kind of like, I mean, they're terrible racist reactionaries. Yeah. They, they've yeah. got this vocabulary. They're going like, it's woke, triggered, snowflake. Michel Foucault, postmodernism, cultural Marxism, you know, deconstruction. There's <laughs> like these words are radically different orders. They're like, I don't know. Exactly. Some of them are like memes. Like, you have this, like Literally. You know, it's a sort of completely untethered vocabulary and system of a repertoire of memes and like proper words and like <laughs> developed theoretical schools of thought. It's like, Literally. and they just throw them at whoever, whoever they don't like. I Literally, mean, yeah. but that worked. Like in a yeah. sense, that meant. That, I mean, you know, anyone who heard these, like, I mean, I've been in conversations, like, you know, with people who've like, you know, never opened up a sort of Foucault, like, yeah, piece of writing. Just go, well, Michel Foucault is like a problem. Like, what? Like, <laughs> and I mean, I mean, like, has turned on Foucault. <laughs> I know, I noticed that, but I think it's very telling. It's just like when I hear some people speak about it, it's almost as if they are like first year philosophy students and never heard these things. And they think, oh, and their whole worlds have been shaken. But again, yeah. I think it's very deliberate. I think it's very, they've been weaponized for a purpose and politicized for a reason, and especially in this moment in time. Yeah, which um, what you're saying, funny, the, you have this group of intellectual vanguards who mm-hmm. are always complaining that where it's the end of civilization and white men can't get on the syllabus anymore and no one even cites white men and their entire repertoire for understanding the threat is Foucault, Baudrillard, <laughs> you know, like it's like, I mean, it's, it's just the, th- the theorists are all the, or somehow fit the profile they think doesn't exist anymore. It's almost like it's this, it's this accidental plot to bring them back. Um, but then the, the, the actual, the, it's interesting because aside, like most of the black and female scholars who they cite yeah. are also academics, yeah. well, some of them, but they also write popular books. And they're actually not reading their journal articles. They're not reading their like academic books often, right? Yeah, it's just very odd just very odd construction of who the enemy is and how the literature is assembled. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this has been an insightful conversation once again. Thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed this once again. Guys, you're listening to The Malcolm Effect with Mamadou. Please like, comment, subscribe, be that on YouTube, Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. And until next time, take care.